You're listening to a talk from our Uni Church conference, Glory and Shame of the Cross. It's part of a series, so make sure you listen to them in order. Yeah, so I'm happy to um, answer questions on anything tonight. I mean, if I were you, I wouldn't bother asking about quantum physics or algebraic theory, but you can have a belt. I'll have a crack at those things. Uh, but anything to do with the Bible, uh, we can go with. Christians should be people who have questions. Um, God has given us a word and it's a divine word as well as a human word. That means we're always going to be learning. Uh, if you're a Christian who doesn't have questions, you're basically a Christian who has stopped thinking. There are still a whole bunch of things that I can't wait to figure out. So ask questions on anything tonight. You might never have heard of a guy named Chuck Yeager. But in my childhood, he was an absolute hero to a whole of my generation. He had a stellar career. He was a World War II fighter pilot. After World War II, he flew prototype jets. He even was one of the early guys who flew for NASA in their space program. But the thing he's most famous for is breaking the sound barrier. So on October the 14th, 1947, Chuck Yeager flew a jet at Mach 1, which is 1,225 kilometres an hour, which to us actually seems kind of slow. It's you know, only just over 1,000 kilometres an hour. But in 1947, that was huge. It was so huge that no one actually had any idea what would happen when they broke through the sound barrier. So some scientists really thought that the sound barrier was impenetrable. As they went through it, the plane would explode and the pilot would die. Some people even said that when they went through the sound barrier, the pilot would reverse in age and begin to go back to childhood. <laughs> Have a look at what Chuck Yeager said afterwards. He said, the faster I got, the smoother the ride. We were flying, flying supersonic and it was as smooth as a baby's bottom. Grandma could be up there sipping lemonade. I was thunderstruck. After all the anxiety, all the anticipation, breaking the sound barrier was really a letdown. The sonic barrier, the unknown, was just a poke through jello, a perfectly paved speedway. Later I realised this mission had to end in a letdown because the real barrier wasn't in the sky. It was in our minds, in our knowledge, in our experience. How good is that? The real barrier wasn't in the sky, it was in our minds. And sometimes that's the case, isn't it? The real obstacle to us seeing the truth isn't out there, it's in here. It's our paradigm, our whole way of just looking at the world. And just occasionally we find that our paradigms get rocked. And like Chuck Yeager and everyone at that time, things are different to what we thought and our paradigms need to shift. Well, tonight I'm hoping we're going to go through a paradigm shift. I want us to break through a barrier in our thinking about the cross. Why did Jesus die? All the horrors that we looked at last night, that we saw Jesus go, why did Jesus go through that? More than that, why did the Father and the Son send Jesus to the cross? Why did the triune God work towards this? Well, the answer that I hope you know already really well is that Jesus did all of that for us. Jesus died for us. So Jesus' death is what is usually called a penal substitution. 
So on the cross, Jesus substituted himself for us and he took our penalty. That's what penal substitution means. It means that Jesus substituted himself for us and he took our penalty. Because of course we know that Jesus didn't deserve to suffer those things, did he? We do. Jesus isn't the one who rebelled against God. I am. And not just me, every single human being has done it. But on the cross, Jesus did something that was just absolutely mind-blowing. God himself substituted himself for us and took our punishment. So Isaiah 53.6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or Isaiah 53.12, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, Jesus was my substitute and he bore my sin and he bore my guilt and he bore my punishment. He wore all of that in my place. And the New Testament uses a wonderful little word that just captures this idea. It's the word hupa. Hupa means on behalf of. It means to do something on behalf of someone else. Now, usually our Bibles will just translate it as the word for. You won't even notice that it's there. But you can see Hooper in passages like Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That word for is Hooper, gave himself up on behalf of her, in her place. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Or Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, in every one of those verses, hupa is the word that's used. Jesus died on our behalf. So that both sin and salvation are a matter of substitution. Sin is where I substitute myself for God. Salvation is where God substitutes himself for me. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that on that cross, God was substituting himself for you. And when you get that, it actually, this is a wonder that I've never lost. I became a Christian on the 16th of February, 1989. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon. I became a Christian sitting on a pastor's lounge as I finally understood that Jesus had died in my place and I have never lost the wonder of that. That God would die for someone so worthless as me. Do you realise that that's what the Bible calls you? The Bible calls us worthless in Romans chapter 3 because what do you call a creature that doesn't worship its creator? Worthless. What do you call a servant who doesn't serve their master? Worthless. And yet the one who is of greater worth than all of the creation put together died for worthless people. It's the most wonderful truth of the gospel. My favourite hymn has always been this beautiful, beautiful song called My Song is Love Unknown. This is, we, we don't sing hymns in our church because, well, we, we do sing them, but we kind of update the, um, update the tunes. This is a hymn that is so worth updating the tune to. Let me read you the first verse. My song is love unknown. My Saviour's love for me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that my Lord should take frail flesh and die? 
Who are you that God should die for you? We're worthless. And yet the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus substituted himself for us and took our penalty. Never lose sight of that. And yet this is exactly the point at which our paradigms can actually junk up our thinking about the cross. Because see, as human beings, what is our natural paradigm? What is the natural, fundamental human way of looking at the world? Well, selfishness, isn't it? My world revolves around me. My innate view of the world is that everything, including God, is actually here for me. And you see it in the way advertisers advertise to us, don't you? So this is a placemat that I got from Burger King. I found this in a Burger King. It says, have it your way. You have the right to exactly what you want when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special. And tomorrow's. And the day after that. And well, you get the drift. Yes, that's right. We may be the king, but you, my friend, are the almighty ruler. And all I wanted was a hamburger. (laughs) They're giving me the world. Now, why do they advertise to us like that? Because to be honest, I love that idea. That fits my paradigm that I, I should be the almighty ruler, at least of my life. Another ad I got was from a bank in Australia called the Commonwealth Bank. It's got a whole bunch of things written in a chalkboard and right in the very middle it says Gregory's favourite. And down the right-hand side it says, it's all about you. That one even personalises its appeal to my greed. (laughs) Gregory's favourite. Mind you, the only person who ever called me Gregory was my mother and only when I was in trouble. So they were on a loser there every time. But the message is clear, isn't it? The Commonwealth Bank is all about me. It fits the me first paradigm. So what happens when I hear that Jesus died for me? What does my paradigm lead me to naturally think? Well, that the cross is all about me and that God and Jesus and heaven and eternity is really all about me. The cross is about my future and my salvation and my going to heaven, which is true, don't get me wrong. But what do we lose in all of that? We lose God. Because friends, God has a different paradigm to us. God is most passionate about His glory. God's most passionate about his honour and his name and his grandeur and his fame. Look what God says when he promises to rescue Israel in Ezekiel 36. He says, it's not for your sake, O people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations where you've gone. I'll show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. You see, here is God. He's promising to save his people and bring them back from exile. But he says, it's not for your sake that I'm doing this. You're not the centre of my universe, Israel. No, it's for the sake of my name. It's for the glory of my name. Because that is the point of the universe. The whole point of the universe is that God receive glory. I once read the most wonderful and simple and profound statement. God is not an idolater. 
Such a simple sentence, isn't it? And yet it's so profound. God is not an idolater. Idolatry is where you put something ahead of God. You put something in front of God. In the Ten Commandments, it's you shall have no other gods before me. That's what idolatry is. And God is not an idolater. God won't put anything before his own glory. So yes, God loves Israel, but he loves his own glory more. Yes, God loves you, but he loves himself more because anything else would be idolatry. What we need to have is a Copernican revolution. Ever heard of Copernicus? Copernicus was this Polish astronomer who lived in the 16th century and he was the first guy to realise that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, that it's actually the other way around. For centuries, people thought that the sun and all the planets revolved around the earth, but that we were at the absolute centre of the galaxy and of the universe. But Copernicus said, no, no, no. He had this beautiful phrase. He said, no, no, in the middle of all, the sun sits on his throne as upon a royal dais ruling his children, the planets, which revolve around him. It was an extraordinary idea. It was so extraordinary. The Roman Catholic Church declared him to be a heretic because people just couldn't get the idea that we weren't at the centre of the universe. But slowly as this idea caught on, there was a revolution. People finally realised that we are not the centre, the sun is. And we need to have that same revolution about God. You are not at the centre of the universe. God is. You are not what God loves most. He is. You are not the most important thing to God. You are not even the most important thing in your life. God is. And look, if that's true of the whole universe, it has to be true of the cross, doesn't it? If the whole universe was created for the glory of God, so must the cross be. Tonight we're going to break through a me-centred barrier and we're going to look at the cross for God's sake. What did the cross display about God? What did the cross do for God? Let's pray and we're going to ask God to show us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you not just as finite beings, but as fundamentally selfish beings. We've been taught our entire lives to put ourselves first, to see ourselves at the centre of our universe. But you are not an idolater. We pray that tonight you'll show us how the cross was ultimately for you. And we pray that as we look at all of the ways that the cross was for your glory and your majesty and your rule and your victory and your love, we pray that we will go through a Copernican revolution. We pray that we would be glad to discover that when we look into the heart of the cross, we don't find ourselves there, but you. Amen. One thing Christians really hate is finding a verse that doesn't fit our grid. So, you know, we're we're reading along. You might have been reading in Philippians in your Bible studies and you're going, yes, I understand that. Yes, I agree with Paul there. Yeah, I think Paul got that bit right. And then all of a sudden, bam, you hit a verse. 
that just doesn't make sense. I don't agree with it. I don't like what it's saying. And we hate that because one of two things is, is going to happen here. Either I haven't understood this verse or even worse, I haven't understood God. And neither of those are very palatable, are they? And so the easiest thing to do, the time-honoured Christian solution is you just slide quietly past this verse and you pick it up on the other side where you do agree with God. But the thing is, those verses are the best verses because those verses are the ones that show us where we now need to change our minds to match God. And that's Colossians chapter 1. Come with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now that is one of the grand sentences of the New Testament. It's a hymn that's all about Jesus' greatness as God's firstborn, which is another way of talking about the heir. So have a look in verse 15 again. He says, Jesus is the firstborn or the heir of all creation. And the reason is because if you look in verse 16, Jesus created everything in this creation. So he created all things in heaven and on earth. He created all things that are visible and invisible. And he also created all of the thrones, the powers, the rulers and the authorities. And what Paul's saying there is, everything in the physical realm was created by Jesus and everything in the spiritual realm was created by Jesus too. The thrones, the powers, the rules, authorities, the angels, the demons, Satan himself. Everything has been created, visible and invisible, by God. It doesn't matter what it is, he made it. And verse 16, he made it for himself. That's why he's the heir. But not just this creation. In verse 18, Jesus is also the firstborn or the heir from among the dead. Because in the new world that we're heading towards, where God's people are raised, Jesus is going to rule there too. He's the heir of that creation because he's already been raised. He is the first. So that Jesus is the firstborn of both creations. Which means if you look in verse 19, Jesus is supreme in everything. So Colossians 1 is this great Copernican revolution passage. You are not at the centre of the universe. Jesus is. You didn't create everything. Jesus did. It wasn't created for you. It was created for Him. And all of that is well and good. But look at what Paul says next in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Christ and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth all things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you see our problem with that verse? Can you spot it? Paul says, all things have been reconciled to God through Jesus. But how on earth can that be? Because the word reconcile means to re-establish proper interpersonal relations. In verse 20, it's making peace. But 
you could never say that all things are at peace with God, could you? I mean, what about people who aren't Christians? They're not at peace with God, are they? They're rebelling against God. What about Satan and his demons? They're, they're not at peace with God. Surely Satan's not reconciled. How can all things in the universe be reconciled to God because of Jesus? Well, I guess there's two options, isn't there? One, maybe actually everyone is saved. Maybe we've got this whole heaven and hell thing wrong and there is no final judgment. Maybe everyone is saved. Although when you think about it, the Bible's pretty clear, isn't it? There is such a thing as heaven and there is such a thing as hell. God is going to judge the world. Not everyone is going to be saved. So have we maybe got this word reconciliation wrong? Is Satan really at peace with God, but just not in the way we think? Well, yeah. Because you see, there are actually two ways of making peace, aren't there? One way of making peace is forgiving your enemy. That's what God has done for Christians. So look down in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy and blameless in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Isn't this the wonderful news of the gospel? If you're a Christian, you're someone who used to be God's enemy. You weren't at peace with him. You were a rebel and an enemy in your mind because of your evil behaviour. But now because of his death in your place, Jesus has reconciled you to God. You are free from blemish. You are free from accusation. For Christians, reconciliation comes by salvation. But reconciliation can come another way too, can't it? Not when you forgive your enemy, but when you utterly destroy your enemy. So completely that they have nothing left to fight with. And that is why Jesus died on the cross, to utterly destroy God's enemies. So turn over a page to chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Colossians 2, verse 13. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Notice how Paul talks there about the powers and authorities. These are the same beings that Jesus created back in chapter 1, verse 16. This is Satan and his cohorts. It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, is how Paul talks about it in Ephesians. And look what God did to them in 2.15. On the cross, God disarmed them. On the cross, God triumphed over them. And on the cross, God made a public spectacle of Satan and his cronies. That is, the cross of Jesus was the moment when God made peace with his entire universe. 
including Satan and his demons, but not by forgiving them, no, by crushing them and by defeating them forever. How? Well, if you look there in verse 13, it's by forgiving our sins. And in verse 14, it's by fulfilling the law. We're going to look at this more tomorrow night, but Satan is God's great enemy. And back in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said that Satan has built a dominion of darkness. And this is a dominion that every single human being is part of because we've all followed his lies. We've all bought into his rebellion. We've all followed him into rebellion against God. And now we belong to him. That is, Satan is everything that is the, the Copernican revolution isn't. But at the cross, God destroyed Satan's kingdom. He emptied Satan's kingdom. Because Jesus died for the rebels. He died to rescue the rebels. So that look in chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, The Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. That's what the cross was. The cross looked like Jesus dying helpless and hated and forsaken alone. But what it really was, of course it was that, but it was God, the Father, destroying and emptying and plundering Satan's kingdom by saving the rebels from his grasp. Because what does Satan rule now? Nothing. His people have been stripped from him. You see, the cross was this magnificent moment of irony. Satan thought that he was nailing Jesus to the cross. He entered into Judas and Judas betrayed him and Satan thought it was his great moment of victory because the king was dying. He thought, Satan thought he was triumphing over Jesus on the cross. Satan thought that Jesus was now a public spectacle on the cross. But it was the other way around. God was nailing Satan to that cross. God was triumphing over Satan on that cross. And that at that moment, the entire universe saw his defeat. Because in that moment when Jesus died for sinners... Satan's kingdom came crashing down and peace was at last restored to the universe. And then when Jesus returns, that peace will be completed. It's reconciliation through annihilation. You see, why did, Satan, why did Jesus die? Well, yes, it was for you. Of course it was for you. It's the beautiful truth of the gospel. But even more, Jesus died for God's sake. The cross was for God's glory and God's majesty and God's rule to bring the universe back to God. Now look, you might find this idea confronting. You might find the idea that God and Jesus are about annihilating their enemies and triumphing over them and publicly shaming them. You might, it all sounds a bit kind of hostile, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like the loving God that we know. In fact, you mightn't like a God very much who defeats his enemies and crushes them. But that's where we need the Copernican revolution. We need to see how crucial, how important God's glory and majesty is and just how offensive sin is. God's glory, God's name is the most powerful, most important thing in the universe. That God rule unopposed in his universe 
that God's majesty be acknowledged all throughout the universe. That's why God made the universe, remember? But that doesn't happen because Satan's rebelled. His demons have rebelled. They've lured humanity into a great rebellion against God that denies him his true worship. And that's a travesty. It's offensive. Paul understood that. When Paul goes to Athens, he sees all of the idols throughout the city of Athens and he's greatly distressed. And that word greatly distressed, it's to burn with anger. It's to get hot under the collar. It's to feel that anger right in the pit of your guts. Paul sees the idols of Athens and he's furious because God is being robbed in the city of Athens. Athenians shouldn't be worshipping Zeus. They should be worshipping Yahweh, the true God. New Zealanders shouldn't be worshipping money. They shouldn't be worshipping the All Blacks and career and family. They ought to be worshipping Yahweh. Satan oughtn't be drawing people away from service of the living God. He is robbing God through those idols. And it just eats Paul up. And so he does something about it. He preaches. He preaches the gospel. That's one of the reasons why we evangelise. Have you realised that? We don't just tell people about Jesus for their benefit. We tell people about Jesus because we are righting a wrong. We're righting the wrong that this person is not worshipping Jesus as they ought to. And we just don't want to see them dishonour God anymore. Because when you see the lives of your friends who aren't Christians, does your heart break for God in their lives? So much honour robbed of him. Are you offended for God? Often we look at our friends' lives who aren't Christians and we envy them because they get to sin. They get to go out and get drunk and they, they get to have sex before marriage and we're kind of jealous. Or at least if we're a little bit more Christian in our thinking, we might feel sorry for them because we know that they're hurting themselves. But the cross shows us the true cost of sin. The true cost of sin is not what it does to us. It's what it does to God. God is denied his honour and that must not be. And when Jesus died on the cross, that wrong was righted. The great rebel was nailed up onto the cross and peace was restored to God's universe. It's the cross for God's sake. And you know, Colossians 1 shows us another way the cross is for God's sake and that is it made us a thing worth him owning. Because look down in what he says in Colossians 1 verse 21 again. Paul says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight and without blemish and free from accusation. Why did Jesus die for us? Well, if you ask 100 Christians, then 99 of them would say, well, it's so that we can go to heaven. It's so that we can have eternal life. And yes, that's true, but it's fundamentally the me first paradigm. What Paul says is, no, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. God saved you in order that you might be presented to him. 
And that presenting idea, it's the language of the Old Testament temple. So, you know, in the Old Testament temple, things would get presented to God. So the sacrifices would be presented up to God and Israel's tithes were presented up to God. And that's why they had to be free from blemish. That's why they had to be perfect because only perfect things are worth God owning. And Paul says, well, that's actually why Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you in order to make you blemish free, in order to take away any accusations so that you could now be presented to God himself. Because you know that's what heaven's going to be? Heaven is where you and me and every Christian who's ever lived is going to be presented up to God. So God's going to be on His throne. He'll be shining in majesty and the angels will be adoring and singing Him. And then Jesus will present us to Him, His Father, forever. And then we will spend an eternity adoring and praising our God. We'll spend an eternity in that Copernican revolution where God is at the very centre. And you know, if you don't think that sounds extraordinary, if you think that's kind of a boring view of heaven, if, you, if, if you'd rather that heaven be some kind of eternal tramp in the wilderness or some kind of wild party, you just haven't understood how captivating God is yet. In heaven, we'll be entranced by God. We'll be hypnotised, we'll be mesmerised by the majesty on the throne and captivated by Him. And in heaven, we will be radiant and pure. Every accusation gone, every blemish washed away and all of the universe in that moment will see how worthy God is to own this perfect people. God on the throne is worthy of these perfect people. The fact is, Jesus did not die to give you heaven. He died so that in heaven, you can be given to God. And you might ask, well, does that mean I'm unimportant? Does that make me a byproduct? Does that mean that God doesn't love me? Now, of course you're important. And you're not a byproduct. Of course God loves you. He just loves himself more. God's not an idolater. God's more important than you. And so, of course, God's going to be more important than you in heaven. And of course, God's more important than you on the cross. It's the cross for God's sake. What did the cross achieve for God? Well, one, it achieved a universal peace. Two, it achieved for God a people finally worth owning in heaven. And point three, the cross was the ultimate ultimate display of God's wisdom and God's power. Come with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I'll frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased 
through, through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Paul has the most extraordinary evangelistic strategy. He says, Jews, they're really convinced by miracles and signs of power. They love that stuff. And Greeks really love ideas and they really love arguments. They love guys like Socrates. And so we give them the exact opposite of both of those things. We give them a weak, foolish cross. So think back to last night. How could you ever think that Jesus on that cross was the king of the universe? He was helpless. He was betrayed. He was spat upon. He was beaten again and again. And then he was ridiculed and humiliated. Worse than that, he was cursed by God himself. Where is the power in that? You cannot get a weaker person than Jesus dying on the cross. And where is the wisdom in it? Where is the logic in a crucified king? You know who got crucified? Criminals. The worst kinds of criminals, human scum, the very opposite of the idea of a king. And so Greeks go, this is stupid. It's illogical. It's insane. And Paul goes, and that's our message. It's awesome, isn't it? The very thing everyone out there is going to hate. And more than that, he says, look at the kind of people God chooses to be his people. Look in verse 26. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. See, Paul says, God's people kind of mirror Jesus' cross. They're the foolish, the weak and the lowly. They're the education students of the world. Primary education ones at that. They're the slaves. They're the poor people. They're unimpressive. But Paul says, that's who God chose. They're the people that God decided for. Why? Why on earth would God do this? Well, look in verse 29. So that no one may boast before him. God chooses a weak and foolish cross and a weak and foolish people so that no one will ever boast in human beings. Or look down in verse 31. It's so that we'll boast in God. See, what would happen if the church was full of impressive people? Imagine if, imagine if all of the greatest stars of Hollywood became Christians overnight. Imagine if Ryan Reynolds became a Christian tonight. Imagine if The Rock Dwayne Johnson became a Christian tonight, Scarlett Johansson. Kind of like, remember a couple of years ago, Kanye went through the Christian phase. They'd everyone want to become a Christian, wouldn't they? We kind of saw it. All sorts of people started going along to Kanye's services. Mass conversions, wouldn't it? Which sounds great. But what would people be converted to? Not worship of Yahweh, God. No, they'd be converted to worshiping Ryan Reynolds and Scarlett Johansson. But when your church is full of dregs, when your church is full of the lowly, the slaves, the ordinary, the unimpressive people, well, the only thing that can shine then is God. 
This is the ultimate Copernican revolution. In an unimportant church, God is the only important, the only impressive, the only great one there. And at that point, people go, well, how incredible is God? God can fashion a kingdom out of garbage. He can fashion a kingdom out of a crucified criminal. He can fashion a kingdom out of the most unimportant people on the planet. How magnificent is God? That's what's so dangerous about this thing that's going around that's often called the prosperity gospel. Have you come across it? The prosperity gospel is the idea that God's true people, you can spot God's true people because they're the ones who are rich and they're the ones who are healthy and they're the ones who are successful and popular. It used to be really focused on money. Give God money and he'll make you super rich. But now it's often a lot more subtle than that. Now it's about a lifestyle. So picture a church in your mind for a second. Everyone is beautifully dressed out the front. They're in a light-filled, tasteful, expensive building and they all drive nice cars and the guys are all fit and built and handsome and successful and the girls out, out the front, they're all beautiful and stylish. In fact, everyone out the front has straight teeth and they're all wearing the most up-to-date clothes and the show is perfect every week because God gives you the good life. Don't you want to be one of those people? Can you feel the lure? Don't you want to be part of that in crowd? Because everyone out there does. The unhappy people, the people with broken lives, they look at those churches and they think, I just want a slice of that. But what's glorified in that scenario? Not God, right? No, a lifestyle, the pastor, the successful people, the worship pastor. The fact is the cross is not beautiful. It's not middle class. It's not successful. No, the cross is gritty. The cross is blood and guts and vomit and it's shame. And it's humiliation. And we're going to see on Thursday night that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you join me up on that cross. You take up your cross and you follow me and you die to this world and you die to success and you die to admiration because what good is it to gain the whole world and yet to lose your soul? Heaven preserve Uni Church from ever becoming one of those churches where the shininess of the show masks the shame of our Lord's cross. God, preserve this church from ever being impressive. Give us real people. Give us real people with insecurities and struggles with sin and struggles with depression and bipolar. Bring us the people who will honour God, not the people who absorb it themselves. Because you see, that's a church that gets the Copernican revolution. That God's the one at the centre here. God's the one we're worshipping, not ourselves. Not human glory. He's so wise. He can save through a foolish cross. He's so powerful. He can resurrect a crucified king. And the cross shows us that. You see, it's the cross for God's sake. And the last way we see that the cross is for God's sake and really where 
This is the bit I love. It's the glory of God's name. Come with me to John chapter 12, verse 20. John chapter 12, verse 20. We're going to come back again here tomorrow night. We're about to move to what I think is the very centre of the cross itself. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. So they said, we'd like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And then Jesus replied, well, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is another one of those odd passages. Some Greeks come and they ask to see Jesus. And for some reason, Jesus says, well, that means that the hour has come for me to be glorified. All because some Greeks have turned up. What on earth have Greeks got to do with Jesus being glorified? I'll leave you to answer that by looking at the chapter, two chapters before this. But what does it mean for Jesus to be glorified? Well, he explains it in the next verse. Look in verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is talking about his death, right? Jesus' glory is actually his death. And we're going to dig that into that tomorrow night. But it's not just Jesus' glory. Look in verse 28. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Isn't that an amazing moment? You know something big is happening when God speaks from heaven. And God says that He has glorified His name and in Jesus' death, He's about to glorify His name again. Somehow, when Jesus dies on that cross, it's when God glorifies His name. Jesus' death is actually God's most glorious hour. Which sounds incredible after last night, doesn't it? I mean, remember last night, we would probably think that last night, from last night, that Jesus' death was God's most shameful hour, right? Because on the cross, that was when God forsook Jesus. That was when God turned away from Jesus. That was when God poured out His wrath on Jesus. It was horrible. How on earth could the cross be God's most glorious hour? And what on earth does it mean to glorify your name? How do you glorify a name? Well, actually, God's glory and God's name are all wound up together. You understand both of them together. They've always been connected ever since Exodus chapter 33. So what I want you to do is, if you've got a paper Bible, just keep your finger in John and come back with me to Exodus chapter 33. This is one of the great passages of the Bible. It's one of those kind of foundational movement passages of the Bible. We're back at Mount Sinai. Israel have just committed their great sin with the golden calf and God has punished them and He's also forgiven them. A lot has just happened. And look at what God says to Moses in Exodus 33 verse 3. Exodus 33 verse 3. God says to Moses, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. 
Isn't that a great moment? This is one of those truth-speaking moments. You guys go up, but if I go with you, I'm going to kill you. It's kind of like the parent moment in the car. God sends Israel on their way, but he says, I can't go with you because you're so sinful, the likelihood is I'll destroy you. And yet what will happen to Israel if God doesn't go with them? I mean, remember, they've just come out of of Egypt. It's been a really harrowing time. They've only just made it out by the skin of their teeth and God has been with them. How are they going to defeat their enemies now if God doesn't go with them? And so look what Moses begs God down in verse 15. He said, then Moses said to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, Moses says, don't leave us, God. How will anyone know that we're your people? What's going to protect us if you're not with us? And so God relents. Power of prayer. Verse 17, here is God changing his mind. The Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. If you've been trying to figure out sovereignty of God, human responsibility, predestination, all this stuff, here is a time when God changes his mind. The sovereign God who knows all things changes his mind. God gives Moses what he asks. He is going to go with them. And then in verse 18, Moses does something incredibly brave. Probably one of the bravest things any human being has ever done. And actually, I think kind of a little bit cheeky as well. He asks to see God's glory. So look in verse 18, he says, now show me your glory. I think what Moses wants here is proof that God is going to go with them. If you're going to go with us, if your presence is going to be with us, show me your glory. Because you see, remember when God came down on Mount Sinai to be with his people, he showed them his glory. God's glory is proof of his presence, you see. And Moses is saying, if you're staying with us, if you're truly staying with us, show me your glory, God. Now, what would you expect God to show Moses when he shows him his glory? What do you imagine God's glory would look like? Because I mean, on Mount Sinai, it was thunder and it was lightning and it was amazing, extraordinary things. Is God now going to make it snow in the desert? Is that the glory of God? Is he going to send hail and lightning? Is that the glory of God? How is God going to show Moses his glory? We'll look in verse 19. And the Lord said, I'll cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. You see, when it comes to God's real glory, don't think about power. Don't think about might. God has those things in spades, but that's how human beings measure glory. We look at the externals, don't we? Our heroes are powerful men and women. It's people like sportsmen and movie stars and wealth and success. For us, power is glorious, but not for God. God's glory is actually something much more impressive. It's his goodness. God's glory is his character. It's his nature his purity, his perfection, his goodness. And that character is summed up in his name, the Lord. So look in verse 19. God says, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. 
You see, when God wants to show His glory, He shows His goodness and He proclaims His name, the Lord. And at this point, you might never have actually thought about this. Did you know that God has a name? I mean, we usually just call Him God, don't we? But God has a name. And you can see it there in verse 19, it's the Lord. Although if you've got your Bible open, you'll notice that they've written it a little bit strangely. They've written it all in capitals. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You see that? It's because the word that's there is not actually the word Lord. It's the word that's about to appear on the screen. It's Yahweh. <laughs> it's those four letters. Yahweh. And in fact, nobody is really sure how to pronounce that word because the Jews never pronounced it out loud because they didn't want to misuse God's name. And so they never said it out loud. Whenever they came across those four letters together as God's name in the Bible, they used their word for Lord, a word called Adonai. They just skipped it, didn't say it at all. They just used their word for Lord. And that's what our translators do. They go, well, I guess the, the Jews never said it out loud. So we won't write Yehovah either. We'll just write in the Lord and we'll stick it in capital so everyone knows what the word really is. Most likely what God's name sounds like is Yahweh. Some people pronounce it as Jehovah, but it's almost certainly not that. Yahweh is God's name. So that when Moses asked to see God's glory, God says, all right, I will have all of my goodness pass in front of you and I will declare to you my name, Yahweh. Because God's name and his goodness is his glory. God's name tells you his goodness. Because names are like that, aren't they? Names are actually meant to represent who we are. We don't really do it much nowadays, but names are meant to have a meaning and usually the name is chosen as kind of either it describes what the person is like or what their parents hope they might be like. So the name Abraham means father of many because that's what God said Abraham would be. He'd be a father of many. There's a really stupid man in the Old Testament whose name is Nabal, which means stupid. And he was stupid. He dies because of his stupidity. David, King David kills him. I've actually... Um, I've got a Korean friend whose name means inherited brilliance. Now just have a think about that. <laughs> inherited brilliance. What does that tell you about what their parents, what his parents thought of themselves? I actually have my own Korean name because my surname is Lee, which means that when I was at university, all the Chinese people went, well, you must be one of us. You've got a surname Lee. All the Korean people went, well, you must be one of us. You've got a surname Lee. And so I said, well, in that case, if I'm going to be Korean, I want a Korean name. And I came up with my own name. My Korean name is Wang Him. Do you know what Wang Him means? It means regal and mighty. <laughs> At least I think it does. I don't actually speak Korean. <laughs> it could mean dog poo for all I know, but... How does God's name reflect his character? If names have meanings and if the meaning is meant to reflect your character, how does God's name reflect his glorious character? Well, he unpacks it in chapter 34. He unveil, unveils his name for Moses. So he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and look in 34 verse 6. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That is God's name. That's what Yahweh means. My name, Wang Him, means regal and mighty. God's name, Yahweh, means the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That is what Yahweh means. And actually, a little bit like Wang Him, you'll notice that there are two elements to God's name. God's name contains two very strong ideas. And in verse 6 and 7, there is the idea of grace. What is God like? Well, God is compassionate. God's gracious. God maintains. He doesn't just love the thousands. He maintains his love to the thousands and he forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is God's name shows that his glorious character is grace. And the Hebrew word for that is the word chesed. Chesed means grace. It means mercy and compassion and kindness because that's what God's name shows him to be. And yet God's name also shows him to be just because God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. God punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God is fully just. And the Hebrew word that captures that idea is the word emeth, truth, justice, rightness, fairness. You see, God's name shows us his glorious goodness, his glorious character. It's a character of two sides. Mercy, magnificent, beautiful, heartfelt mercy, and also truth, integrity, justice, rightness. And that's exactly what we see of God all through the Bible, isn't it? We see a God whose character is both of those things all the time. He's always merciful and he's always just. And so when Israel makes the golden calf, what does he do? He forgives. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden, what does he do? He forgives them and he makes, makes clothes for them. When Cain kills Abel, what does God do? He spares him and he sends, them, sends him away. And when the world is overcome by sin in Noah's time, what does he do? He spares Noah and his family. You see, God's character, God's glorious name is grace, mercy, compassion, chesed. And it means that there is no sin that God cannot forgive in his chesed. There's no evil that God cannot treat with compassion. There's no human being who's beyond the reach of God's mercy. And yet there's also no human being who is beyond the reach of God's justice. God refuses to leave the guilty unpunished. In fact, God judges the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I don't think what that's saying is that God judges people who aren't guilty. I think what it's doing is using poetic language to say God pursues justice to the bitter end. God sees that the last ounce of justice is maintained. And so Adam and Eve sin in the garden and they do die, just as God said they would. Cain kills Abel, 
and he is banished. And when the world is overcome by sin, God sends the flood and many, many people die and Israel are judged. There is no sin that has ever been committed. There is no sin of thought, no sin of deed, no sin of word that God will not punish entirely because he is just. Do you see the name and the character of God? It's his grace and it's his truth. And with all of that in mind, come back to the book of John. John chapter 12. It's just before the cross. And Jesus cries out to his father, glorify your name. Now, what would we expect God to do? What would we expect God to do now at the moment when he glorifies his name? Well, we ought to expect that now of all times, he will be the God of both grace and truth. We ought to expect that at the cross, we will see the summit of God's compassion and kindness and also the dreadful truth of his justice on the world. And that's exactly what Jesus promises. Look what he says next in verse 30. He says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. You see, Jesus promises both MF and Hesed at his cross. He promises judgment. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And on the cross, that's exactly what God did. We saw earlier that Satan was defeated. But on the cross, God punished sin finally and perfectly. Think about everything we saw last night. On the cross, Jesus was sin laden. And on the cross, God punished Jesus for sin and God smote him and God struck him and God afflicted him and he punished him and he forsook him and he poured out his wrath on him because that was emeth. That was just and that was right. And we might be tempted to think less of God for what he did to Jesus on the cross. We might be tempted to hate God for what he did. But no, the cross was glorious. The cross was glorious because at that moment, God's justice was at last displayed to the world. God's righteousness was at last seen by the whole universe because God in His name just could not ignore our sin. To ignore our sin would be to deny God His character. It would be to deny who He is as God. To ignore sin would be wicked. And so God on the cross ensured that punishment was exercised. Paul puts it like this. He says, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 
You see, unless Jesus died, God could not be MF because sin must be punished. And Paul says something extraordinary there. He says, until Jesus, it never had been. All of the sins left that were committed before Jesus had been left unpunished. All of those millions and millions and millions of sins from the point of the garden right the way to the cross. All those people who had lived lives in rebellion against God, their whole lives, God had withheld his true punishment. He didn't punish them. Not even the, the sacrifices in the temple fully dealt with sin. And yet every single one of those sins, every thought, every deed, every action, every moment of rebellion made a claim against the name and the character of God. They demanded to be taken seriously. God could not be true to himself. God could not be himself unless those sins were punished. And so God sent his son to bear the weight of punishment. Jesus was a penal substitute and God directed all of his anger away from us and onto his son. Every thought, every deed, every action of every man and woman and child who has ever lived was punished in Jesus. When Jesus went up onto that cross, God exercised his limitless emeth. He demonstrated that he is the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished, but he punishes the sins of the children to the third and fourth generation as he punished his own son on the cross. And so the cross is glorious. The cross is glorious because God's character was fully shown. And not just... The cross isn't just glorious because God's character was fully shown. The cross is glorious because there God's character was fully expressed. God was thoroughly God at the cross. God was thoroughly just and thoroughly right and thoroughly fair. He was thoroughly himself at the cross. And you might be thinking to yourself, all of that just so that God could be himself? All that pain, all that horror, all that forsaking, just so that God could display and express his character and his name? You might think the price is too high. But nothing is more crucial than God being who he is. Nothing in the universe is so important that God act out his character, that God act out his name, that God be truthful and just and God that people should look at that moment on the cross and say, there I see the beauty of justice. There I see Sin finally being punished. Nothing is so important as that. Nothing is so important as God being God. Father, glorify your name, your MF. But not just his MF. On the cross, God was truly chesed. Because what does Jesus say in John 3.16? 
He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but save the world through him. That is, Jesus' death didn't just rise out of God's justice. It rose out of God's absolute passionate love for sinners. That God didn't want the world to perish. And so he gave his one and only son. God gave up his one and only son to wrath so that people who deserve nothing but anger could actually be forgiven. That is, if you want to know that God loves you, look to the cross. The cross is God's great declaration of passion that His love and His mercy is every bit as great as His demand for justice. That as much as God demanded justice, He longed to forgive. And if that meant the sacrifice of His own Son, then so be it. If forgiveness for us came at the price of this precious one, so be it. Out of love, God the Father and God the Son, together Yahweh, were willing to pay that price. And so Jesus' death is glorious. Because there can be no greater love than this. There can be no greater word. There can be no greater act. There is no greater song or painting or poem that can match this act of love on the cross. That God should forgive such wicked wretches as you and I. That God should pay such a great price for something so fundamentally worthless. That's glorious. More than that that God on the cross should so act out His mercy. Because just as God had never shown His full justice, He'd never shown His full mercy until the cross. You see, in the end, God's glory, His name and His character all come down to one moment. Two bits of wood, one man, nailed to the cross as justice and mercy collide in the most magnificent moment the universe has ever seen. That's glory. And yet before we finish, there's one last aspect of this that I want us to see. And for me, this is the most beautiful and the most sacred moment of the cross. And that is what happened between the Father and the Son. It's the Son's glorious obedience on the cross. Come back with me to John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28 again. John 12, 27. Jesus says, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I mean, that's what he wants to say, right? Who would willingly go through what we saw last night? Jesus wants to say, Father, save me from this hour. And yet he says, no, it was for this very hour that I, this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you see what's happening there between the Father and the Son? The cross is for God's sake because in that moment and on that cross, Jesus was fully obedient to his Father, for the whole universe to see. Because the world hates God. The world doesn't want to worship God. We don't believe God's worth behave, worth obeying. 
But that afternoon on the cross, Jesus showed the universe how God ought to be treated. He obeyed him and he honoured him and he loved his father. John 14 just brings me to tears. Jesus says, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father. And I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Do you see what the cross was? Amid all the blood and the mud and the tears and the pain and even in the middle of the forsaking, the cross was an act of love. It was an act of love from God the Son to God the Father. Even as God the Father was forsaking his Son, God the Son was saying, Father, I love you. I will obey you and I will honour you and I will show the world and Satan and all of his demons just how you ought to be loved. I will do your will and I will wear your emeth and I will take your divine justice out of an act of divine love. Because we know Jesus could have gotten away from the cross, right? Satan had no hold on Jesus in that moment. The nails couldn't have held him there. The soldiers couldn't have stopped him. The fact is it was love that held Jesus on that cross. It was love for his father. Jesus chose that cross so that we and the world and the angels and the demons and the stars and the planets could see that the Son loves his Father and does what the Father commands. Every single thing we saw Jesus go through last night, every single whip stroke, every single beating, The very wrath of God being poured out on Jesus was an act of love from the Son to the Father. And at the very moment when Jesus is dying, he's saying, Father, this is for you. This is because I love you, because you are worthy to be obeyed and you are worthy to be honoured and you are worthy to be loved. And friends, this is sacred ground. At this moment, we're taken in to the very heart of the Trinity itself. That even as the Father pours out wrath, the Son pours out love. The Father who adores his Son meets a Son who loves his Father. And at this point, we have the Copernican Revolution. At this point, we break through all of our selfishness because we come to the very heart of the cross and we don't find ourselves there. We find God. God in his emeth and in his hesed, a father and a son deeply in love with each other and that is how it ought to be. Isn't that the best part of the cross? Isn't that the most beautiful part of the cross that you get there and discover that even the cross is for God's sake don't you love Jesus more don't you just fall in love with Jesus more and if Jesus so loved his father 
What does that tell you about how you ought to feel about your father? Don't you just want to say, oh, Lord, I want to love you like the son loves you. I want to love your justice. I want to love your mercy. I want to love your character. May I love that you were perfectly loved on that cross by your son. Fill me with Jesus' passion for obedience and Jesus' passion for your glory and your honor. God, make me hungry for the very things that Jesus died for. Help me to love your glory, God. Because that's what the cross is about. And tomorrow night, what we're going to see is some extraordinary things. We're going to see that even at the very moment that the father forsook his son, he loved him. And even at the very moment that Jesus hung on that cross, he went to his father. And that even at the very moment when the father was forsaking his son, he never abandoned him. Tomorrow night we're going to see how the son, the cross was for the son's sake as well. Let's pray. Our great God, it's wonderful that when we come to the cross, we find at the very heart of the cross is not us, but you. We thank you so much for Jesus' penal substitution on our behalf. We thank you that he bore our penalty. He paid our price, that we are reconciled and forgiven. We thank you so much for all these things. But we praise you more for your glory. We praise you that on the cross, the wrong was righted. Satan was defeated and his rebellion and kingdom was crushed. We thank you that we get to be your people, that our blemish is washed away, that we are now worth you owning. We praise you that we see your wisdom and your power there, that you can make a kingdom out of a cross and a helpless, impoverished people but we praise you most of all that on the cross, you were truly you. You acted out your character in perfect justice, in perfect mercy. We praise you that in that moment, you were truly yourself, your glorious, perfect self. And we praise you that in that moment, the son loved you. When all the universe hated you, the perfect, shining, lovely son loved you as you have always deserved to be loved but never have been. We praise you for that perfect moment and that we get to know about it. We pray that we might join his love for you. Amen.